Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend part of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast, and I have a great guest for you today. Today, I am talking with Tim Sorens, who is the co-founding director of the Parish Collective, which is a growing network and global movement of Christians reimagining what it means to be the church in, with, and for the neighborhood. And today, a large part of our conversation uh, that Tim and I had is going to be based around his book, which has recently come out called Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are. And Tim is also um, a speaker as well. And I'm just really excited to bring this conversation to you with, with, I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you today. But before that, I do want to let you know that the music that you listened to earlier is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. And if you have any uh, audio or uh, video needs for anything like that, be sure to hit him up. His Instagram handle is at sammassey 77 And for those of you who are listening today, and maybe this is your first episode, I'm so excited that you decided to join us today. On this podcast, we want to create a safe place to have dangerous conversations because we truly believe, I truly believe, that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, that we can learn from everything and we can learn from anything. And so many of our conversations um, are based around that very topic of learning from literally all of those different subjects. And there's going to be times to where, uh, you know, to where I talk with somebody who maybe I disagree with. And that's okay, because we can still learn from each other. There's still the humanity in all of us. And there's going to be times to where you listen to somebody and you disagree with them. And you can still learn from them as well. And so uh, I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have today with Tim. And we're going to jump in right now. Well, Tim, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. It's a joy to be here. And uh, and just as we're getting started, I always just love, uh, I love hearing people's stories and kind of the why behind what they do. And so before we dive in, you know, you've come out with this book called Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are. Um, But you also have the Parish Collective as well. And I was just wondering, can, can you tell us a little bit about the Parish Collective and, and what made you want to start it? Yeah, I'd love to. Well, about 11 or 12 years ago now, I was commissioned to start a new church in the north part of downtown Seattle, in a neighborhood called South Lake Union, which is actually where Amazon is right now. Like, that's where they've all relocated over the, over the years. Uh, and that was during my time there. And for a bunch of different reasons, while I probably went to, I went to seminary at a place called the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and wanted to be a pastor, but throughout the course of my seminary days, some things got, you could say, reimagined. I probably, this is embarrassing, but I think I probably went, in fact, I write about this in the book. I went to seminary kind of wanting to be, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but like a rock star pastor, you know, like be able to, you know, have 
draw a big crowd and have inspired sermons. And I mean, that was like the thing that I was inspired by. And not just because of the crowds, that makes it sound entirely narcissistic. It was really the kind of whole seeker movement that was trying to create experience, create experiences for people outside of church feeling really welcome. And I thought that was really beautiful. So that's why I went to school. And uh, when I was coming out for a bunch of different reasons, really what had captured my imagination was not so much just pastoring a single congregation and trying to get people to come to it. What I was even more excited about was how could I and how could we as a team try and pastor an entire neighborhood, like all of the people in it and all of the systems and really kind of reclaim a focus on a particular place and try and be about God's work just in that place primarily. Well, I had no idea how to do that. The seminary I went to was great, but didn't teach me how to do that. And so how the parish collective began was right around that time, met an amazing man named Paul Sparks, who was already leading a pretty large church in Tacoma, which is about 40 minutes south of where I was in Seattle. He was trying to reimagine and reframe their community around downtown Tacoma, as opposed to a kind of a larger regional church struggling with how to do that. And so it was really our relationship and getting our kind of lead teams together and encouraging each other that birthed, you could say, the first seedlings of the Parish Collective. And then together, we would start, because again, we were just looking for friends and looking for ideas and wisdom and uh, a little support, and we didn't know where to turn to. And so we would, like, for example, we'd drive down to Portland, Oregon, which is about three hours from Seattle. And we would meet all these incredible people who were doing great things in the neighborhood, some of them entrepreneurs, some of them artists, some of them pastors, some of them church planters, some of them everyday parents who really cared a lot about their neighborhood, really loved God, but they often felt kind of alone in the work they were doing at the neighborhood level. And so it was really in a lot of the convenings happening in Portland and other parts of the Pacific Northwest that we were like, maybe God is doing something here because we're like, Hey, we're going to meet, you know, these people like after this, like you should probably connect. So basically what we kind of stumbled into is that movements begin to grow and rumble when people who thought that they were alone discover they're not. And so the parish collective began as a means to try and connect them and it's grown from there. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said earlier. What what made you shift uh, out of the rock star, wanting to be the rock star preacher mentality? <laughs> well, a number of things, but um, this is this story actually is also in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who has become a very dear friend and even mentor is a writer and pastor and missiologist, someone who writes about mission. Uh, way over in Sydney, Australia. His name is Michael Frost. He's written a handful of incredible books, like five, seven or eight at least. But uh, I was assigned while in seminary this book called The Shaping of Things to Come. And it turned my world upside down while I was reading it. And that, in some ways, what happens in that book is there's a bit of a, a contrast between focusing more of an incarnational approach to being the church as opposed to a more attractional or let's get everybody to come to us. So he was making the argument, we should go to them as opposed to 
trying to get them to come to us. Uh, and he wrote that book with Alan Hirsch, by the way, mm -hmm. another incredible person and leader. Anyway, so actually when I met Paul Sparks, it's all coming together, who started the Parish Collective with, Paul had invited Michael and Alan to talk about this book, The Shaping of Things to Come. And it was kind of an invite only event. And I was already kind of wondering what in the world to do, but still push comes to shove, you know, wanting to be, again, it's embarrassing, but closer to a rock star pastor. Well, Michael Frost happens to have all of the gifts needed to be a rock star pastor. He is, for my money, probably the best speaker I know. Incredible storyteller, brilliant, super winsome. He's just, he could draw big crowds. And I'll never forget, we were listening to both of them speak. And Mike, this is in the afternoon. And Michael starts talking about how he and a bunch of friends were starting a new faith community. Uh, it was called Small Boat Big Sea. And they had discerned together that Michael would not actually speak. He wouldn't preach for the first year or two at least because he already had something of a name in Sydney. He knew that he could draw crowds, and, but that's not what they were trying to do. Like that wasn't the game they were playing. Well, I nearly fell out of my chair. And I would say that was probably the, the beginning <laughs> uh, of the major shift and had just become convinced maybe there's a, an entirely new way to go about this. Mm -hmm. So what, what have you learned? You know, you talked about the mentality of, and I think uh, not only churches, but I think a lot of, if you're, if you're trying to start anything, I think that mentality of like, hey, we want you to come to us is very strong. Um, what, what have you learned about the power of going to someone else, though, and going to them on their turf instead? Well, what I've learned that I think has been most formative and powerful for me, and I think uh, could be a really incredible question for even many of your listeners to be asking of themselves and of their even vocations and certainly within their neighborhoods is before we ask almost like the, the functional question, like how do we, in this case, how do we get people to come to our church, right? That's a church question. It makes lots of sense. And frankly, um, it seems like the most obvious question that a lot of pastors and church leaders and elders should be asking, right? However, when we ask church questions, we tend to get church answers and without ever meaning to, I think. I think it's all well-intentioned, almost entirely. We can inadvertently end up focusing on ourselves as opposed to what God is up to and even what God wants as the first and you could say primary question. So what... I have learned is that if the first and you could say fundamental question is what is God up to? What is God doing? What does God want? What, how I read about it in the book are, what might be God's dreams for this place? Before we ask the question of how do we grow our church or how do we become a new church? If the first question is about God and what God is up to, then we are on an entirely new trajectory. And I think by asking those questions and diligently organizing our lives around them, we are dependent on kind of looking for what God is up to, organizing our lives around it. And I think that if we do that together, 
with friends in an actual place, we're going to re- recover what it means, not just to go to a church, but to truly be the church. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? To like, what what process did you go through to discovering, like, hey, what what is God's dream for the neighborhood that you live in? What did that process look like? Well, um, I'm still in the midst of it, honestly. My wife and I moved to a neighborhood in Seattle called South Park about six years ago. It's on the southern end of the city. It's still in the city. It's a working class, largely Latino, Latina neighborhood. My wife is from Chile. And so that was when we were making some discernment as to where we thought we would end up forever in Seattle. Uh, that was a big factor. And uh, because of all the experiences I've, had, I've seen now over the years of visiting hundreds of incredible faith communities, doing incredible work in neighborhoods all over the country and all over the world, it's just become an ingrained habit and even invitation. And so I'd say as far as a process, um, literally you just kind of walk around and kind of prayerfully ask, what is God up to? And, you know, some of the things are kind of obvious that God would, I would imagine want, you know, does God want violence? Well, no. So if there's violence, how do we counter that? Would God want broken marriages? No. Would God want, um, people being discriminated against? No. Um, would God love beauty and joy and places to hang out. And I mean, some of these things are, you know, nearly universal, but they're, we can only really get after them in the particularity of our everyday lives. And so I think that's, that's maybe a place to begin. Another really incredible exercise that we talk, I talk about in the book is to, before you try and be helpful with people, which again, beautiful impulse, but a lot of us were taught, especially in ministry spaces, to be helpful, like servant leadership. It sounds good and is good. However, I have learned that I have a, a friend named Peter Block who says, don't be helpful, be curious. Hmm. And I feel, I guess it's a small switch, but if we are ruthlessly curious about who's even here, What's the history of this place? Who's been here before? What do people love about this place? What are some of the gifts and strengths that are already here? As we begin to just be curious about that and in some sense compile all those gifts and wisdom and resources and people and ideas and things already happening, you begin to feel like, oh yeah, I I, I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can be about. I mean, it, it is literally endless um and then if that's the posture uh it can both be repeated and then you're already usually underway within a story that happened before you got there and it's probably going to outlast you but you get to be a critical part of the story if you want so i think that's for a lot of the folks that are listening uh honestly those two things can go together as they think about their vocations as they think about their neighborhoods and think about their families what might God be up to and how do we stay ruthlessly curious even before we jump in to help? Uh, not that helping is wrong and not that there's not a time for action. Oh, of course there is. But first, to just be really curious. Mm-hmm. What do you think is it that makes us 
Because I think we all lean towards the, we want to be helpful. What What do you think is it that leans us to want to just immediately jump into help, helping instead of being curious? Well, you're not going to like the answer. And I'm, I'm talking at myself here, okay, um, before I'm talking to you or any of the listeners. But I think obviously there's a beautiful impulse of helping, like we want to be helpful. But I think underneath it, if there's a shadow side to being helpful, it's control. That if we can kind of dictate how we're helpful or when we're helpful, uh, or if we're valuable to others, I think there can be a sense in which I can accrue power or I can uh, be a little bit more in control in seeking to help you as opposed to asking even, I mean, this is, there's interesting things when you think about hosting versus being hosted in a place or in a job. Like um, for a lot of us, especially, you know, listeners might not know this initially, but I'm a white guy, 40 something, raised in the Midwest. I was taught to be helpful. I was taught to uh, take control. I was taught to host, not to be a guest. And what's interesting when you study and try and live out the teachings of Jesus is there is, there is a lot more vulnerability. There is a lot more, I mean, particularly in Luke, like I'm sending you out. You're a guest. You're not in charge. Um, while there's a vulnerability to that, we are dependent then on God showing up. We're dependent on other people's hospitality. And for so many reasons, I feel like while it can be scarier, it ends up becoming even more powerful in a holistic sense. Mm-hmm. What have you learned that, you'd ha- that you've had to give up control over in order to have this type of you know, curious and vulnerable lifestyle that you're talking about? Well, for sure, there's a tension here between, you could just say, outcomes, right? So I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I like to make things go down. Uh, my wife and I started a coffee shop. I'm talking to you now from the co-working space that we've started. Uh, I've started a bunch of different ventures, and I like to go. And there's nothing wrong with that. Where I can get in trouble and where I could fall prey to kind of a controlling thing is when, and again, it's not usually intentional, but when we prioritize the outcome as primary, as opposed to valuing the pathway to get there, we can get in trouble. Let me, here's what I mean. I think this actually is kind of deeply human. Um, If we're driven by outcomes, let's just say that my highest goal is to start a new coffee shop. And the first one has been great. I want to start another one. Great. Nothing wrong with that. But if that is like the ultimate aim of my life and I am successful, what is the Again, from almost like a deep human, almost psychological analysis, if I make that go down, start the second shop, and I feel like I killed it, right? It's great. What is the human kind of emotion? This goes all the way back to Genesis 3 that happens. Well, pride. I did it, right? I made it go down. 
because I prioritize the outcome and I can prove it. Like it's right there. I can show you. Here it is. Here are the numbers. I did it, which is both true and untrue, right? No one starts anything by themselves. Now, what happens if I try and start that second coffee shop and I fail? And the chief motivation was the outcome. Well, then what's the emotion? Shame. I mean, then it's like, ah, oh, I suck. Like, I did all this stuff. And both, I mean, both of those are so human, right? And so I think um, what both Paul and I and my friend Dwight have talked about in a previous book called The New Parish, and it gets talked about in this book, Everywhere You Look as well, is the idea of faithful presence, which I think is best defined as at any given moment, trying to be attentive to what God is up to, what is the kind of relational encounter you're in right now, and what is the context uh, that you're in. So even now, for us having this conversation, I don't want to not be faithfully present to you. I also want to be paying attention to what God's up to. It's a podcast format, so that in some ways <laughs> takes care of it a little bit, right? But we wouldn't want to um, kind of defy that and make fun of listeners, for example, or I mean, there are ways that we could be unfaithfully present even to each other. Uh, that could be true of you. It certainly could be true of me. So that's something I think that we have to be aware of at all times. Mm -hmm. what, what are some things that have helped you become more present um, in the moment into what God wants you to do? Well, it's a lovely question. Even the question itself <laughs> helps me, honestly. Um, I think pace and timing and breathing and looking at busyness. And um, like I said, I like to go fairly hard and take on a fair amount of things. For the Enneagram nerds that might be listening, I'm a seven. So I'm always chasing new adventures and ideas and projects. And um, so for me, and this could be very different for different people, I need to have disciplines where I slow down. So the idea of Sabbath, walking, turning off my phone, turning off my laptop, of um, kind of intentionally, I've got two little boys, like very intentionally being with them no matter what we're doing. These are not necessarily revolutionary, but they are disciplines for me because otherwise I'll kind of go, go, go. And, and, you know, that's probably true for a lot of this is, for a lot of people listening, if they're interested in hustling, uh, that's probably some of their bent. So I think, I think slowing down is powerful. Um, so that's, you know, that's one way of getting at it. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree and amen to all of it. So I'm a, I'm an Enneagram three. And mm -hmm. so I understand the drive to continue to do, um, and to move as fast and as efficiently as possible. As well. really? um, what, what have you learned that just, it does not work? What are some of the things that you've learned and it's like, wow, like this stuff, like you do this, it's just not going to work whenever it comes to learning more about your community. I mean, you mentioned one, like choosing to be helpful over choosing to be curious, but what are some other things that you've learned that it's just like, Hey, like, this does not work whenever it comes to building relationships and understanding your community. 
Well, here's one. This is a bit of a frame that also has been really helpful for me. And uh, it's a frame. So I think you could apply it in different contexts and, and to some extent with different people. But certainly at the neighborhood level, I think this would be true for a workplace level too. Um, a lot of us have been formed and trained, if we want to be helpful, like we we're going out before, to identify the needs and the problems. And that, again, makes good sense. However, particularly at the neighborhood level, if that is your primary frame of addressing and looking for the needs or the problems of a given neighborhood before you look at the gifts and the assets, what can happen unintentionally is in order to help, you often veer towards professionalized care. You often veer towards needing to start what some people have called nonprofits that get caught up in the nonprofit industrial complex, or you know, maybe some of your listeners have read incredible books like Toxic Charity or When Helping Hurts, like we can actually do harm without meaning to. And a lot of that begins, particularly as we look at people, if we look at people primarily as deficient or in need of our help or in need of our strength, as opposed to having inherent gifts and value and strengths of their own, it can set up a trajectory which can harm us. And so, uh, and I think, again, going back to Genesis 1, uh, verses 3, I think uh, for, for folks that have been connected to Christian faith communities, there can be a, an, a tradition almost that begins the whole biblical narrative in Genesis 3 with the fall and forget that actually we were all, all, every single one of us created as good. In fact, in the scripture, in the Hebrew, it says tov meod, which means like unbelievably good, like really ridiculously good. And I think that's a more beautiful, more joyous, more abundant posture to see people. And so that doesn't mean there's not problems. Of course there's problems. Of course everyone has problems. But if we fundamentally label them as deficient, or we're looking at, I've got a friend in Ireland who says, we can't look at just what's wrong, we have to look at what's strong. And I, th I, think, I think that's a beautiful frame. You know, so much of what this particular book is about is about how we see and how much that matters. Like how we see, to some extent, is even more important than what we do. And so that's a big part of what I'm trying to encourage both myself and others into is what's the lens with which you're looking at your neighborhood? What's the lens with which you're looking at your faith community? What's the lens, you know, put on the glasses. How are you looking at it? What's there? Um, look at it, interrogate it. Um, because how we see profoundly affects what we do. Mm-hmm. How could someone go about changing how they see? Because they're just like, Tim, like, I don't know how to do this. How, <laughs> how, like, what, what has helped you help change your perspective on how you see things? Well, it's a great question. I definitely have a book for them. And um, I also think that the, when you look at, and almost kind of critically and whimsically look 
again, so much of my life is trying to be oriented around the, like, how do I follow the life and teachings of Jesus? And when I, the more that I study the life of Jesus, the more I feel like I'm in relationship with him, the more I see that uh, the script that he seemed to live his life by is pretty different than the script I feel like I was given uh, in contemporary society living in the United States as a white man. You know, there's, there's a lot of differences there between us already, but I think maybe a place to begin is what are the some of the underlying narratives that is just the water that we've swum in, we've swam in. What are those things? What is valued? What is not valued? Um, this is true across different cultures. This is true as uh, we look with different genders, different ages, different ethnicities. Um, take a look at it, um, both with appreciation for what's been given. And I think it's important to have a critical eye. Um, what are some of the assumptions that we've made that may, we maybe need to look at again? And so maybe more practically, ask questions about, you know, when I, when I was growing up, what were the things that were most valued? And are those still the things that I wanna have govern my life? Maybe, maybe not. And if, there, if not, we need to essentially repent. I mean, that's a hard word, but it's actually potentially when you, when you think about what it actually means to repent, as you might know, it's just to do a 180. That's what it means. It literally like turn around. So, you know, if, if we were talking before about how I, and maybe this is you to some extent, were raised and formed and even encouraged right now to be driven and in control and successful and, right? Well, what does it mean with God's help and the help of others to repent of that? To say, no, that is not going to be the story that guides my life. Well, that's the no. And then it hopefully will invite a yes. In fact, I would argue it has to. Otherwise, you can get kind of caught up in the cycle of deconstruction and and almost like paralyze yourself with fear that anything I do is going to be you know harmful well maybe maybe not but you still got to act you still got to try so uh, I'll pause there I think <laughs> what what's helped you get through the moments to where uh where you feel like you failed or you were trying to be helpful and you're like dang I should have been curious what what is what's helped you remain um, encouraged to continue to do the work, even whenever you fail, even whenever it's really difficult. A combination of both vision of what's possible, and this is why for me, actually, place or neighborhood or like trying to live this out in a particular place is so powerful. And it's I say that because on the vision side, it's like. Yeah, it's aspirational. It's, this is who I want to be and become. This is so if I fail, I want to get back up again, right? I think that's true for a lot of us. When we try to do things in a particular place, it's different, at least it has been for me, than just trying to 
do a program somewhere else or even you know hop on an airplane which i do have done not right now but plenty of uh to teach or to lead communities in something when it's in your neighborhood and it's a part of your actual life then the place itself in a sense talks back <laughs> what i mean is like you try something and it's in your actual neighborhood it's with your friends it's it, you can't escape the reality of it, right? Now, that has some teeth, has some grit, but it's a gift because you find out what's real. Like if I'm unintentionally being dismissive or being a jerk or not being nearly as curious as I hope to be, I'd rather be confronted with that reality via a real person in a real place that I'm gonna have to face again probably than to wiggle out of it and just cast blame on that person or that situation, which is you know a pretty human tendency, right? Uh, and so by trying to join in God's dreams in a particular place, that's not just about mission, it is, but you take one step into that vision, which I think is beautiful and bold and multifaceted, and you discover quickly, I need to become something new. I need to change. This is going to change me and confront me with shadows and kind of sinful stuff within myself as much as I'm hoping to be an agent of change. And uh, that is so critical for us to hold on to because without it, we can unintentionally begin, again, that's kind of where the savior complex comes from, which I was reared to have. Uh, but it, 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 be, it can begin to melt away when you try things and fail. Or, you know what, a lot of times it's not so much like a full-on fall-in-your-face disaster, lawsuit, you know, <laughs> train wreck. That can happen. A lot of times it's, hey, um, you know, when we were working on this, I know you maybe didn't mean to do this, but you said this and oh, it just like tore me up. I was like, oh my goodness. Well, that, you know, I can either have like, well, that was, no, I didn't mean that and it's on you. Or it can be like, oh, I'm so sorry. And let's, again, <laughs> before I try and fix the situation, tell me more. Um, that's not easy. Uh, it's, that's not my natural impulse, but it is an invitation. It's an invitation to grow up. I think that's a huge gift of trying to be about God's and work and trying to join in it in a particular place is it confronts us with the crucible of spiritual formation. Yeah. For the person who's listening and they're like, okay, it's, it sounds overwhelming. I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I should do. Where, where would somebody start? Sure. Well, um, here's the thing. Depends on what they're wanting to do, but let's just say that they're like, yeah, I'm all right. I'm in a neighborhood. I love God. I love my neighbors. I love the neighborhood. How do I, how do I start? Well, I think the first place to begin is um, to just ask those questions. God, what are you up to? And my, I think the most fervent prayer might be who might I already know ideally? And if not, the prayer can be who could join me that can be asking these questions and praying these prayers with me. 
you know, God, what are you up to? If we could get together and get two or three people to ask that question and then see if we're not invited into some kind of experimental action, some kind of dare, some kind of, hey, let's do this again. Hey, let's keep showing up to this place. You know what? As we were praying about this, uh, I feel like this is something that we're drawn into or we got to keep after it. Um, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but there is, it, it, if the desire is to wrestle with how do I have more of an integrative experience of both being a Christian and being a part of a church in the everyday life of a neighborhood, I think it's important to keep in mind that there are so many, even in, you know, Seattle, which is often called kind of like a post-Christendom kind of a city, there are people following Jesus all over the place. It's just that we're disorganized. We don't know each other. Um, there's 40,000 denominations, literally, probably more than that now. And so on the one hand, I think we have to play the long game and say, God, what are you doing and how do I get after it? You know, the long road of obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson said. But as far as steps, I, I think today, literally today, when you're listening, you're driving home or you're on the treadmill or doing dishes, God, what is one desire you have for this neighborhood and how might I be a part of it? Is step one and step two would be who could join me? I think that's pretty doable. Uh, it's, if we keep doing that, over and over and over again. It's not just like a delightful, cute little exercise. That is revolutionary. That would reorganize the church. That would then confront some of the deepest harms of our economic realities and our political polarization and environmental abuse and gridlock in our education systems and you, there's no issue you can name that the truly local church couldn't get, a, get after if they're asking questions about what God was up to and what God dreamed for and willing to collaborate. One final question that I want to ask you, and I've, uh, I love asking this to people, is if you could pass on three lessons that you've learned in your life to everybody, what would they be? Whoa. Well, I think we probably in some ways talked about them in this hour, but I haven't formulated them. I would say the first would be pay attention both to God and to what the gifts and skills of other people. The second would be say thank you Meaning, when you're delighted or grateful, I think gratitude is so contagious and so powerful. And the more that we can pass it on, the more beautiful our world will become. And the third would be, this sounds kind of cliche, but um, refuse to give up hope which maybe is something that people are wrestling with right now. There's a theologian who 
I adore. His name is Dr. Willie James Jennings. And one of the phrases I have heard him say is that hope is a discipline. It's not a feeling. It's not a small little thing. It is a discipline. And I think it's a discipline we need now more than ever. That's good. What? I said that was the last question. I actually, I guess I lied. I had one more. I was just thinking. Love it. Um, no, I was just thinking, uh, just as you were talking, um, right now in our country with there being so much stuff going on from COVID to, to the racial tension in our country, and we're gearing up for a political cycle as, mm-hmm. as well in the election. Uh, I'm just curious, what have you learned about neighboring well in a, in a time that, uh, that you're just not sure what to do? You're not sure what to do. It could be filled with controversy. Um, or people who disagree with you, what have you learned about neighboring well and whatever it comes to that? Well, particularly as we begin to see this election season grow in both anxiety and energy, I think it's important to as it relates to neighboring, I think it's important to remember that at least in this country, the United States, that at our best, you know, America is a beautiful idea and with a lot of very, very conflicted history where we have not lived up to our highest ideals. And I am a believer that the most powerful way forward in our common life, which is what politics are essentially, is the decisions about our common life. The best place to begin, and I would hope and long the most amount of our attention and focus is with our neighbors. And the reason for that is is because I think it is a counterattack to the deep, deep polarization that is making, I think, us all suffer at a national level. Of course, some neighborhoods have a lot of commonality, but if the task is to truly love your neighbor as yourself, which if you're a follower of Jesus is a, and a mark idea, it's a big thing. The thing about neighbors is that you don't get to pick them, you know? You don't get to unfriend your neighbors. You, they're there and you've got to love them. And that means, you know, if you watch MSNBC all day long and your neighbor watches Fox News all day long, you find a way of love and care, even though you're long that are probably telling you not to, as an example. And one more profound reason why Christians especially and the truly local church is so important is I think that democracy right now is in need of healing, arguably even salvation level. And I'm going to begin at the neighbor to neighbor level. And that's not to say federal doesn't matter or state county of course it does but i i almost always give more authority to people that i've seen 
walk their talk than people who can just kind of make an argument or spin something on a mm -hmm. news channel. And so I think we're in a, a season where we need to deeply recover what does it mean to love our actual neighbor as our actual self, regardless of how they vote. Yeah. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know people are going to want to pick up the book everywhere you look. Where's the best place for people to go to find the book, to continue to follow and learn from you and all of that stuff? The book, I think, is pretty much everywhere. It's on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. There's a great website called bookshop.org where the, if you buy the book there, some of the proceeds go to local bookstores. And then um, folks can follow the Parish Collective at parishcollective.org. And awesome. oh, one more thing. That I, I do have, if you're like, oh, this is kind of interesting, I'd like to hear a little bit more before buying the book. The first chapter is available on my website, which is timsorens.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the podcast. Thanks for all the work that you're doing. And just thanks for spending a few minutes with us today. Thank you. It was a joy. Thank you so much. Tim, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It's great talking with you and great learning from you as well. And for those of you who are listening, thanks for listening as well. Uh, if you're listening and you enjoyed this episode, or if you just want to make sure that you never miss an episode, again, be sure to go to your podcast platform and either hit the subscribe button, hit the follow button, or whatever it might be, uh, whatever uh, button that you need to hit to make sure that you never miss a single episode. We got some great episodes coming up with you or coming up for you in the future. And anyway, just thanks again so much for listening. Thanks for helping us uh, just continue to build a community to where we continue to learn and grow together. And so my name is Caleb Mason. Be sure to hit me up uh, on any of the platforms if you would like to continue any of these conversations on. Uh, particularly, uh, you can hit me up on Instagram at Caleb J. Mason. And uh, thanks so much for listening. We want to continue to be a place that continues to foster this, this dialogue of creating a safe place uh, to have dangerous conversations. And so until next time, keep learning and keep growing.